tuning in to episode 11 of Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. About a month ago, Johnny Vedmore and I published an article on Unlimited Hangout about the World Economic Forum's first major simulation following their controversial Event 201. Uh, this event was known as Cyber Polygon. It was co-hosted by the Forum and a subsidiary of Russia's largest bank, Spurbank. And it simulated a cyber attack targeting specifically private and central banks, an event that, if it came to pass, would likely bring the global financial system to a grinding halt and facilitate the introduction of a completely new digital system. Such an event would certainly benefit the simulation's co-sponsor, Spurbank, which is set to become the first major bank in the world to issue its own cryptocurrency stablecoin and an associated financial ecosystem that will allow them to monopolize payments for daily services throughout Russia. Their system is set to launch sometime in March, which is, of course, just weeks away. Aside from the ever-growing possibility of a great financial reset, in the United States, we have the growing specter of a war on domestic terror that has been designed and is set to be implemented by the very same people that lied the country into a disastrous and deadly war on terror, a war that was clearly, in retrospect, always intended to be a global war of terror. On the quickly escalating domestic terror front, most recently, we've seen a pre-crime arrest related to January 6th that was based only on social media posts. Mainstream media claims that the so-called riot has now inspired Al-Qaeda and ISIS to work with alleged U.S. extremists, and that FEMA has now been tasked by the Biden administration as the latest agency to turn the bulk of their focus and funding to combating domestic terrorism. To discuss the latest developments in the apparently imminent collapse of the financial system and the parallel collapse of personal freedom and the right to dissent in the United States, I am joined today by Charlie Robinson. Some of you may remember Charlie from episode two of this podcast. He is the host of the Macroaggressions podcast, which you can find on Rockfin, just like this podcast, by searching for the Macroaggressions channel. And his podcast is also available on other podcasting platforms. Charlie is also the co-author of the new book, The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire, co-written with Jeff Berwick of The Dollar Vigilante. Thanks for coming back on, Charlie. So how are you doing in these crazy times? I'm doing great, all things considered. It seems like um, we've had a, you know, in the last year since we've talked, uh, the wheels have come off. The um, I've been disappointed at the response of the American public to just roll over and, 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 and give up. Um, to trade away their freedoms for some false sense of security. Uh, it's been, it's been, you know, I'd, I'd like to say I had um, hope that that things wouldn't turn out this way. But, but over the last ten years or so, we've we've watched this erosion of our civil liberties. We've watched people outsource their critical thinking to the mainstream media and politicians, and and just say, oh. This this world is so complicated. You tell me what to think. You tell me how to act. You tell me what's right for me to do. And in in it, you know, culminating in 2020, where people couldn't, you know, the question was not, do these masks work, or it's how many of these masks should do you want us to put on? I mean, it was it was for a country that prides itself on being tough and uh, and about freedoms and personal responsibility. I mean, all that went right out the window the yeah. first time they were threatened with the possibility of getting sick. 
You know, it's uh, interesting. I don't know if this video was from the U.S. or not, but recently on social media, there was a video of a guy that literally just stood out of side of some random store with a lint roller. And he started telling people that in order to go inside, they had to like hold their arms out and let them let him pass the lint roller over their clothes. <laughs> and literally everyone that comes up, he doesn't even have to tell them. They just put their arms out and let them do it. Uh, it, I mean, it's really wild to watch. Like, no one is like, wait, that's a lint roller, not a metal detector or something like that. Like, um, the, you know. The, the, this is where we're headed. This is a this is what GMO foods, fluoride in the water, and a lifetime of television will get you. You, you just It just brainwashes you, right? So you're a compliant sheep. And I hate to say it, too, because I'm, a, I'm an American. I still live in America. I want what's best for America. But if I'm being objective and if I'm being honest, I have – I've been extremely disappointed at the response of the people. Now, I expect this sort of stuff from the government and the media. It's it's what they do. But I have lost so much respect for the general public because, you know, I feel like when these these heroes are presented to us out of, the you know, in March of, of 2020, all of a sudden. Fauci steps forward. Deborah Burke steps forward. These people that the vast majority of Americans have never even heard of before. And instantly they just bow down to them because their television tells them to, because their media tells them to, this is an expert. You're not an expert. How dare you question this expert here? And what you find is with two minutes of digging, this so-called expert has a lot of people that are questioning him. A lot of very smart people that have problems with what he's talking about. Or they have really obvious conflicts of interest. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't take a lot of work. Yeah, massive conflicts of interest, too. And 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 and, and as Americans, we, we used to look at conflicts of interest differently than we do now. Now we just go, oh, that's just government. Well, this guy worked for Lockheed <laughs> Martin. Now he's going to be the Secretary of Defense. Well, that's just the way it is. No, no, no. No, that, that shouldn't be the way it is. We should stand up and say, we need to change these things. We need to hold these people accountable. Hang on, we have some questions. But the... It's become a monologue from the government and the media towards us, not a dialogue. We don't get to question them. We don't get to have the conversation with them. They tell us what to do and we don't get to ask any questions back. So if or if we do, we get circled back to, you know what I mean? So, yeah, totally. Well, hopefully, and you know, as the situation gets uh, more extreme, maybe we'll see some more people snap out of it and, and start to question so. what's going on to an extent. Um, yeah. Well, especially with with some things, you know, it's getting harder to hide the the various scams that have been going on over the under the guise of COVID over the past year or so. So, you know, hopefully someone will be able to present enough, you know, data in such a way that even normies will be like, oh yeah, those numbers don't make sense, and we were lied to last year and things like that. So, you I know, hope so there 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 is always the hope that that people will snap out of it. Maybe, it, you know, maybe we just aren't at our breaking point. Maybe that that line in the sand hasn't been drawn yet. So, um, whatever it is, hopefully Americans get back to being a little bit more skeptical of their government. A little bit more skeptical of the media, of course. Um, the you've done great work on the big pharma and their role and things. I mean, for people to blindly trust the pharmaceutical industry is insane. It to is, me. and they'd be giving total liability on the vaccine too. So they have they have zero incentive, even from a business yeah. perspective, to make sure the vaccine is safe and effective. Um, and if you look at a lot of the studies that have been done, supposed safety trials and things like that, I mean, none of them have actually been completed. They're all based on preliminary results. The FDA hasn't actually uh, 
officially approve the vaccines only via emergency use approval, but they're being marketed as though they were actually approved by the FDA. Um, and it's it's really wild. And a lot of these vaccine trials uh, didn't use a sa- saline placebo. They used a, another vaccine like Pfizer's meningitis vaccine that has is associated with like a slew of side effects. So that effectively masks, you know, any sort of side effects that these, uh, you know, newer uh, vaccines may have. And, you know, uh, none of that has been the subject of really any critical reporting. Um, there was the exception of NPR actually getting around to report on the shady nature of the vaccine contracts awarded to the U.S. government, how they were heavily redacted. They were handed out by um, a subsidiary of Answer, the Dark Winter Think Tank, um, oh, and stuff like that. Yeah, but, you know, this was a few months ago. Um, but it's amazing just how... Um, how coordinated the propaganda effort for the vaccine is. And I think that's not just, you know, exclusive to the vaccine. You know, there's a couple other things that have been, you know, targeted in that way, including the domestic terror narrative and some of these other narratives that we've uh, been hearing about, Um, you know, ad nauseum. And the inclusion of the social media platforms in this um, suppression campaign of information, because like you said, any of those things about the vaccine, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know what I mean? So. Well, one of the things we've been hearing a lot about recently is a, is a lot about different financial things like digital currencies, in a, uh, for example, in a way that haven't been covered recently either in a lot of interesting events with that. First off, I want to start about talking about the, the financial system. So in your recent book, you and Jeff Berwick discuss how the collapse of the American empire mirrors the controlled collapse of a building, with one of the key systems targeted for controlled collapse being the global financial system, specifically currencies. So others have been highlighting the state of currency is something to definitely pay attention to. So for example, I spoke to Catherine Austin Fitz a couple weeks ago, and she recently released a report about the coming end of currencies as we've known them. And you've spoken about how debasing currency is a key way to bring about the collapse of the American and by extension, the global financial system since the US dollar is still the global reserve currency. And of course, the American financial system is uh, critical to the project of American empire, um, including military expansion and all the basis abroad, among other things. So given the dramatic uptick uh, that we've seen recently in money printing and also the ballooning of debt in the U.S. and globally in the past year because of COVID and, and related issues, how do you see this situation developing? Oh, it's a mess. And it's an intentional mess. And we, Jeff Berwick and I wrote this book. And and when we, when we laid out the framework of it, um, well, it, it, it came from a conversation I had with Jeff when he said, you know, it's all coming down. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? Elaborate. And he says the whole system, like the financial systems, the house of cards, the way the governments are set up, it, it all seems so stable, but it's coming down. So in my head, when I hear coming down, I'm thinking like a, like a building, like a controlled demolition of a building. So I said, Jeff, what if we did, um, what if we made this, the comparison between the way you would take down an actual building, you know, uh, pre-weakening the building, identifying the support columns, rigging the detonators, ringing the alarm bells, pushing down the plungers, clearing the debris. What if we took that and compared it to the way the empires come down? And so one of the, when we got to the part about rigging the detonators, that's where we got into central banks, debt, quantitative easing to infinity, and all of the um, manipulation of the currencies that they that they do. I listened to your interview with Catherine Austin Fitz. She is the best. I've written two yeah. books. I've got chapters about her in both books. So I mean, I'm a I'm a <laughs> fan, and I and and I think that she sees things 
from an angle that most people can't because of her her extensive work with Dylan Reed and co. So I like what, you know, she's talking about the end of currencies. That's hard to comprehend for us. But mm-hmm. when we looked back, when Jeff and I, we started the book by looking back on previous empires. And one of the things that you saw, you see a very predictable pattern. And when you get to that, there's eight stages of empire. You get to that last stage and where we are as in, in the American empire it is undeniable we are on the eighth stage. Nobody can deny that. One of the things that, say, the Roman Empire did that was fascinating to me was they would take their gold coins as as things were expanding beyond belief. They, their their empire their empire was as big as it had ever been. Their army was massive. It, it was unsustainable. Out, you know, searching for wars to get into. Um, they they started to debase their own currency. Now, they did it by taking coins and clipping little pizza slice uh, sections out of the edges of all of the coins, collecting all those pieces together, melting them down and making a new coin or 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 changing the content of the of the metals in, mm-hmm. in, in order to debase it. So so they you know, the Fed learned from the Romans, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's a there's a pattern you get to when you grow this massive empire at some at some point at some point you can't afford it anymore. So you look at you're in control of the money supply. You say, well, I'm in control of the money supply. I just print more money. Nobody will know, except they always kill the goose that lays the golden egg. They just there's something in our psyche that just makes us take it one step too far. And there's a point at which you've gone too far. And in 2020, what we saw was the creation of what, almost 40% of the U.S. money supply was created in 2020. I mean, no wonder That's Bitcoin so was mental. going through the roof. I mean, this is a this is a recipe for disaster. If I didn't know any better, if Jeff and I, when we were writing this, we were saying, I think they're trying to start hyperinflation. I mean, it's yeah. the only explanation for this. It seems like they're they're trying to kickstart and and whittle away this currency in order to force people to make a decision to get out of it and into something else. So this is going to be, in my opinion, a classic problem reaction solution situation. Right. Problem. We've got a currency that the U.S. dollar is hyperinflating. Reaction. Oh my God. Uh, we've got to find something more stable. Solution. Here's the Fed coin. Now, not Bitcoin, but the Fed coin. You know, some manipulated currency that right. has a backdoor. They call a stable coin. They, you know, they'll, they'll use every sort of trick in the world to make you think that this is stable, but it will be a compromised digital version, and then they'll start the scam over again. So, so we. This is that. This is a, a, a very important component of taking down the American Empire. In fact. It's it's something that we when we looked back, you know, we we talked about the Roman Empire, and that's that's so far away. It's it's kind of hard to to make that comparison in, in in a way that we connect with. But a lot of us can connect to the former Soviet Union, and we saw what happened there. A lot of the same strategies that were used to take that union down were used on us. So you've you've got a unwinnable war in Afghanistan for ten years. God, we've doubled that. You've got exterior forces manipulating your their currency that was definitely happening the soroses of the world were in there doing that you have the politicians that were stealing everything that wasn't nailed down and then uh outright uh, privatizing industries and giving it to their buddies turning them into oligarchs so mm-hmm. all of these things that we saw in the soviet union that led to the collapse they're the same playbooks being run on us here too including currency manipulation so we, we it's something for us to keep our eyes on i know it doesn't get a whole lot of you know, it doesn't get a whole lot of 
talk because it's, you know, banking is so boring, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's way more exciting and interesting to talk about yeah. wars and things like that. But banking, you know, banking gets a pass because it's just boring white guys with with dark suits on Wall Street and who cares what they're doing. And it's so complicated. And and I don't know. But but it is so important for us to understand how it works, because totally they've used this system to just enslave humanity and 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 create a sort of, um, you know, quality of life here in America that's completely unsustainable in, unless this Ponzi scheme keeps going. And so it always leads me back to Berwick saying this whole thing's coming down. And he didn't say it in a in a in a snarky way. He just said it in sort of a matter of fact way. Like it just, it's a math equation, you know? And so that's where we are right now. Who's in charge of the banking? The only the most devious people in the world. What are they doing with it? Well, they're inflating it away at, at, at a crazy rate. And they're, and, and, and under, for what? Well, it's under the guise of fighting COVID or, you know, stimulating the economy, but mm -hmm. we see through that. It's not stimulating the economy when only Amazon and Best Buy are allowed to be open and all the mom and pop stores. Are, I mean, that's, that's not what this is. This is a demolition in order to bring in this fourth industrial revolution. So going back to FedCoin, I feel like a lot of people misunderstand just how insidious that is, because not only will it allow central banks to continue manipulating the money supply and currency and what have you, but it also for the first time ever would allow them to basically turn your money off because of this whole, you know, the, the whole ecosystem, payment ecosystem they're trying to set up alongside these central bank-backed, you know, coins, the Fed coins, or whatever you want to call them. But also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you have Spurbank, Russia's largest private, well, it, it's, its largest stakeholder is the Russian government, um, but, you know, it's still technically not fully state-owned, but they're about to introduce their spur coin, and that is has the, you know, approval of Russia's central bank. So, you know, some public-private, to an extent, cooperation, and, you know, what's not technically a Fed coin, but definitely isn't something uh, much better, <laughs> or potentially even worse, right? Yeah. So, um, one thing that I've heard from from you know I'm I'm not you know a, a crypto expert or anything like that, but I do know a lot of people that are really into crypto and have a lot of knowledge about it. Um, and so you know we, we've heard a lot more about cryptocurrency and uh, and Bitcoin recently, even in mainstream media. Um, and so you know for most people, based on that reporting, Bitcoin is sort of thought of as you know this novel financial technology, um, you know sort of uh, volatile uh, market or you know but a lot of people that are really into Bitcoin don't view it really as that. From In my experience, they seem to perceive it more as like a political movement or statement, sort of like yeah. as an investment in the irrelevance of central banking, things like that. So yeah. I was wondering what your views were, it, it, um, you know, on that, um, you know, on that on that viewpoint. Well, my take on crypto is that it's um, a lot of the people in that Bitcoin community, I've got to know them at Anarcapulco over the last couple of years, which is the conference in Acapulco, Mexico that Jeff Berwick puts on. It's the largest anarchist convention, cryptocurrency, health and wellness. So I've got a chance to meet a lot of those guys and talk to them about that. And they do see this as not a, as a bet against the current system. So it's not so much that they're um, looking at Bitcoin from a financial services uh, 
standpoint, they're looking at it as how do I get out of this system? How can I conduct business without the state being involved? How can I do the sorts of things that I want to do without um, unnecessary gov government oversight? Oh, and by the way, maybe I can make some money at this at the same time by investing in a coin that there's only going to be 21 million total in circulation. So they play that money supply game. So I think they're coming at it from a couple different angles. They'd love to make money doing it, of course, but it's more, a lot of them see this as a freedom um, bet and, and, and more of a bet against the current paradigm system. So what do you think about, um, you know, people, you know, look at this stuff, right? And are like, well, how the heck do I ensure any sort of future financial security in this climate? You know, some people are like, is crypto the only option? Um, you know, what are, do you have any opinions on that? I think that a lot of people that see crypto as an option also see physical gold and physical silver, something like that, something that is uh, that they can hold, that they can have. I mean, the, the one component of, of crypto that makes people nervous is that they can't tangibly hold it. They feel like they can't put it in their hands and bury it in their backyards if they need to. I guess, and technically you can, if you have it in a crypto wallet, you can do that. Mm -hmm. but, but still, there's, a, there's something psychological about having a gold coin in your hand or having a silver bar in your hand that makes that a little bit more real. You can, you know that it has value because it's precious. You can exchange it with people uh, on a local level if, uh, if things go wrong. So, um, that that that's something that people are 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 flocking to. They see the dollar as a question mark for the first time in a very long time. I mean, I think they should have been seeing it as a question mark for the last fifteen to twenty years. But yeah. most mm -hmm. people assume that it's stable. They think that the and it, and compared to maybe some of the other currencies around the world, maybe it is a good bet. Maybe it's a better bet than 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 some uh, you know form of currency in 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 a remote part of Africa. But but if you look at the financials of the U.S. dollar, it's a catastrophe. It's just waiting to happen. It's only propped up because of our relationship with the um, it, as the world's reserve currency. Uh, our use of the SWIFT, SWIFT banking system keeps a lot of people um, at check because of that. Um, our petrodollar arrangement. And let's be honest, the U.S. military backing it. Mm -hmm. So. So this has kept the dollar relevant for a long time, probably longer than it than it should have been. But it's changed now. We've gone off of gold. It's not backed by anything but a promise. It's really backed by a threat. Um, so that's when, when your currency is backed by the threat of the U.S. military, mm, you know, that just doesn't have the same sort of feeling of security than if you have some uh, currency that is backed by the fact that it's a scarce uh, uh, metal or uh, a cryptocurrency that has a maximum capacity of number of units that can ever be created. So, so I think people see that as a, as a potential safe haven in an environment where there aren't very many safe havens to be had. Well, the, the petrodollar is pretty interesting too, because this whole, you know, great reset crowd, you know, they're also looking to sort of reset the energy sector in a huge way um, and, and yep. basically eliminate oil. And so you have oil in some sense, um, you know, there's obviously the other things backing the U.S. dollar you mentioned, too. But of course, for, you know, since the 70s, uh, a big part of that has been oil. This, uh, you know, announced effort backed by people like Bill Gates, among other billionaires, to move, you know, the world at some point completely off oil. Uh, that's going to involve some sort of reset type event, probably, too. And obviously, if that were to happen, you know, the dollar would obviously be in a sticky situation. So it's definitely, you know, the the whole oil market energy aspect to this is something that sort of, sort of I think, gets uh, overlooked a lot when talking about the whole Great Reset. 
Um, uh, and as specifically its financial component, because people don't see how so much of it is interconnected, you know, like the energy finance and some of these other parts. Yeah. And, and I wondered when Saudi Aramco went public for $2 trillion, if that wasn't them cashing out before this big, great reset, because they know that they're in an industry that has been slated for destruction itself by these maniacs at the World Economic Forum. So perhaps they were given the heads up. Hey, listen, we're transitioning to a world without oil. You might want to take your profits off the table at this point. And that could have been a reason for that. Well, I think, you know, that's part of why the MBS's rise in Saudi Arabia was engineered because of this recognition that at some point the Saudis would have to embrace a post-oil economy, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of the ways in which they maintain order in Saudi Arabia is through the wealth provided by oil and providing a lot of men in Saudi Arabia, cushy state jobs that are all you know, financed by this. And then you had MBS come in promising to make this new, like what smart city or whatever. I I don't know what's happened to that. But you know, that was a few years ago and talking about all this, you know, data stuff and what have you having really close ties to Kushner, also having really close ties to Epstein at a time when Epstein was intimately involved, as was Ghislaine Maxwell and sort of networking with Silicon Valley and things like that. So and and also their Sophia robot that was that was rolled yes. out into Saudi Arabia. Uh, ironically, they gave her citizenship, treated her better than they treated the women in their country. Yeah. And, and, and that Sophia robot was made by Hanson Robotics, which did a deal with uh, Ben, ben Gerzel from Hanson Robotics, took six and a half million dollars from Epstein, Epstein to develop the little Sophia doll, the yeah. emotional intelligence AI doll for kids. So, uh, there's oh, man. that, that yeah, Epstein yeah. Well, creepy component as well. Gertzel never apologized for the Epstein funding. And he is also tied up with another organization that Epstein funded because Epstein uh, funded Gertzel, but he also funded the organization where I think Gertzel is vice president or he's number two, which used to be called the World Transhumanist Association and now is called Humanity Plus. And um, at a limited hangout, we're going to be having a, a report soon about how another person at Humanity Plus has been getting tons of money from the National Institutes of Health to, quote unquote, fight the opioid crisis with like invasive uh, wearable biometrics to uh, determine when someone who has used opioids in the past has a appears to have a craving based on biological markers, it will alert the health authorities to come intervene before they can partake and stuff like this. Um, Oh, oh great. What could possibly go wrong with that? (laughs) I know it's really mental, (laughs) but I think, you know, the whole push for, uh, you know, how Biden and and Kamala Harris have sort of postured about how they're going to start closing private prisons and they're not going to be sending drug offenders to prison anymore. It looks increasingly like the way they're going to argue to do that is by instead basically putting them under house arrest with these, you know, wearable biometric things that they can use to harvest data off of people. And of course, the amount of people with opioid issues in the U.S. is really staggering. It's only gotten worse under COVID. Um, And a lot of people, you know, having the largest, you know, prison population in the world, if you're going to take out all the nonviolent drug offenders and make them wear that stuff, I mean, that's a huge amount of people that you're suddenly gathering all this biometric data from, you know, in real time, second by second. So, um Definitely some crazy stuff and amazing to see these organizations funded by Epstein continuing to be influential and, and, you know, making this, this crazy police state panopticon that's, uh, you know, just so next level. How, how crazy would it be that the, that, that the child trafficking component of Epstein's operation turns out to not be the most dangerous 
that, that, that his, his work with the scientists might end up being, um, what enslaves humanity. I mean, we thought that the, the child trafficking was, was horrible and it is of course, but man, his relationship with these scientists, it, it, you know, it's funny. It, it always, it, it, it made me very suspicious because, you know, it got to the point where everyone was talking about him on the mainstream media with regard to the trafficking component, but they never mentioned anything about his relationships with, with these scientists. They tried extremely hard to distance yeah, him yeah. from Bill Gates as well, too. Well, now the guy that's going to be the top science official in the Biden administration, Eric Lander, he's going to be like a cabinet level official, the new science czar. Uh, was funded by Epstein, and Epstein bragged about funding him on his website. And the New York Times uh, asked him about it, and through a spokesperson, he said, well, it appears that Epstein made this up. So it's not like a flat denial, you know, as opposed wow. to saying, like, no, we didn't get money. It, it appears, you know, the quote-unquote dead guy made it up, you know, so you can't, like, yeah. um, you know, it's just a, a really silly response, and he hasn't been challenged on it at all, and it's amazing to see how elevated these people have become. But I think the reason for that, um, and the reason, you know, Epstein was allowed to become a mainstream media figure is because of the focus on the previous sexual blackmail operation, but it's very evident that after Epstein's first arrest and he was sort of outed, and it became, you know, clear... Uh, at least to people that were paying attention, sort of what was what was going on there. He and Ghislaine Maxwell both transitioned uh, at the same time, you know, Israel's government was and, and other, you know, intelligence agencies like in the US and the UK um, were increasingly relying on electronic forms of blackmail and, and surveillance as opposed to, you know, necessarily sexual blackmail because it's 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 cheaper for them. I think, you know, to have a backdoor and get all of someone's uh, communications and use that as leverage as opposed to having to, you know, um, conduct this, this, you know, uh, child trafficking operation that was, you know, obviously can get some law enforcement att attention. And then you have to bring in the management from the FBI to cover everything up and whatever, like this yeah. always goes, you know, but, but that, um, you know, that's my opinion about that. But the science thing is really, uh, fascinating because most of not to get too much off topic but a lot of epstein's ties to these big tech people um was was through something called the edge foundation and that was a actually a literary agent who's been obsessed with transhumanism for a really long time since the 60s um john brockman and really edge you know which would host this billionaire's dinner you'd have the google co-founders um jeff bezos i mean some of the biggest names right elon musk also attending all of these dinners but it turns out from the time of the first billionaire's dinner 1999 um, until 2015, Epstein was basically the only donor to Edge. It was basically a front for him. And then the year that he stops donating in 2015, they stop hosting billionaire dinners. Wow. How convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, talking about uh, Wall Street, a lot of the, the Wall Street crowd um, that surrounds Epstein, people like Leon Black, um, you know, they all started at the same bank in the 1980s, um, which uh, I'm free. It's like Drexel... I can't remember the full name of the bank. It's like three names, Lambert something. Drexel Burnham Lambert. That's it. Thank you. And anyway, the head of that that went to prison, uh, Michael Milken, right? He yep. uh, came back at these edge billionaire dinners, uh, which were, you know, facilitated by Epstein to rebrand also as a tech investor, which, of course, Epstein started to do after his his first arrest. So, yeah, definitely. Always got to be a philanthropist, right? Oh man, yeah, but I mean the the corruption of the of science um has been really apparent in the in the past year just how 
um, easy it is to pay these people off and you have the right people in elite academia, you know, saying uh, things that aren't actually scientific and they're towing a particular line or narrative that doesn't actually, you know, uh, reflect the data and things like that or, you know, the data is being manipulated and, and all of this stuff. And no one's really brought up the Epstein science fact, like have any of these scientists been blackmailed by Epstein? Some, any of these experts that have been, you know, rolled out or by the same intelligence agencies that are blackmailing people and things like that. I mean, it's definitely worth considering, but I think, you know, for a lot of these scientists, um, you know, just uh, money from the Gates Foundation or whatever, uh, you know, billionaire, quote unquote, philanthropic foundation usually is enough, but it makes you wonder, uh, given how that close association with Epstein and a lot of these prominent scientists. It, it, it always made me wonder, too, and this is, to be clear, a speculation on my part, but the relationship that Bill Gates had with Jeffrey Epstein, I'm, I'm thinking that in that scenario, Bill Gates has all the money in the world. Jeffrey Epstein has all the blackmail evidence he'll ever need. If you're Bill Gates and you're planning to run this, uh, be a part of this gigantic COVID situation that's going to happen in the future, and you have this relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, why wouldn't you buy a copy of the blackmail files from him <laughs> against all these scientists and politicians that you may need in the future when you're running this up? Because like you said, it's very interesting how everybody got in line behind Gates and 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 there was no pushback at all. I understand he funds the media heavily. And I, I do know that mm -hmm. the MS and MSNBC stands for Microsoft. So he's he's always going to be by default painted as the good guy just because of the amount of money he, he throws around. But there was almost zero pushback against Bill Gates. And it made me think that he had the goods on somebody. And if he had the goods, it might have come from Epstein. And like I said, it's speculation. But this relationship they had a very, they, you know, it, Gates said I would go to Epstein because he had access to people and I knew that I could get money from them for some of my projects. That doesn't make any sense to me because yeah. Bill Gates doesn't need the money. He's the guy that gives the money. He's not the guy raising the money. So so that didn't ever right. seem seem right to me. But a relationship in which they uh, exchanged information for money or whatever, that to me seemed like a relationship mm -hmm. that would uh, that would fit, especially given if you're Bill Gates and you know what is about to come, you have Event 201 planned, you have all these things, in advance of that, you would strengthen yourself. You would you would put yourself in a position so that nobody could could go against you. And that's what I think happened. Right. Well, you know, one of the reasons there wasn't pushback, well, initially, right, uh, I think Bill Gates said, oh, yeah, I met him once. And I think he said like 2016 or something. The New York Times came out and said, aha, we found a picture of you with him in 2011 being like, mm. I got you or whatever. But actually, um, I reported on this at the end of 2019. There is an article uh, in the UK newspaper, The Evening Standard from 2001, that lists Epstein's top business partners responsible for his wealth as three people, Leslie Wexner, Donald Trump, who of course we all know about, but the third person's Bill Gates. So that was published in 2001. So obviously there are some intense ties between Epstein and Bill Gates that go back to the 1990s. And we also know that he, uh, Bill Gates, did business with Isabel Maxwell when she um, was running this, this uh, was the vice president at this uh, internet services company that she, uh, Christine Maxwell, uh, and, and their husbands at the time were running called Magellan. But Ghislaine Maxwell had a huge stake in that, actually. So it wasn't just the sisters, as is usually reported. And a couple years later, Isabel Maxwell starts uh, basically running this um 
tech company that was created by these ex-IDF guys, you know, as a sort of typical with Israel, you have the military um, in, in a lot of cases behind these companies. And she talks about how she basically had uh, Bill Gates wrapped around her finger uh, it, to some extent. And the, the Guardian describes her as starting to purr. And she starts talking like a Southern Belle, even though her accent's normally British. I mean, she just gets super weird about it. Um, that definitely wasn't covered. That's a 2003 Guardian article. <clears throat> on Isabel Maxwell for those that are interested because it's a really uh, odd passage to read. But actually at that time, Paul Allen and Bill Gates had both um, basically put ComTouch, which was Isabel Maxwell's this Israeli company at the time, put them on the map, according to Isabel, that they would not have been able to do that. And they were going to go public, have an IPO. And it was actually Paul Allen, his uh, private um, investment arm, I think it was called Vulcan Ventures or something. Vulcan Ventures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, basically came in at the last second and rescued the share price of the IPO so it didn't fail and did all these favors for them. Um, at that time, which is pretty interesting. So there's definitely something there. And also during the 1990s, when, you know, these, these UK newspapers would like follow the Maxwell siblings around and see what they're up to now. What are Captain Bob's children doing now? You know, those kind of stories. Uh, right. Ghislaine would describe herself as an internet operator throughout the 1990s as her official cover story. So it's mm. kind of interesting when you see them rebrand and get really involved with the Silicon Valley stuff. And you also consider that Epstein, uh, it, sometime between, uh, well, in 1999, his relationship with this Edge Foundation and these scientists in Silicon Valley figures really got big, but it definitely goes back to 1995 um, because John Brockman is like the publishing agent for a lot of these big name scientists. So one of his big name scientists, Epstein, funded um, the the book for one of them after the initial uh, publisher rejected the manuscript and some other stuff. So he'd already sort of started there. And in the early 90s, he was already funding Harvard and some of these universities where he cultivated these, these, you know, science ties, MIT being the other one. And another thing that's really weird, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier um, about Gates, is that he funneled his donations to MIT through Epstein. So he didn't give through his very well-known philanthropic foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He has no problem using that foundation to give money to tons of organizations, but he couldn't donate to MIT himself. He had to funnel it through Epstein. And his excuse for that was was uh, what you cited earlier saying, well, he knows a lot of rich people. And I'm like, you know, Bill Gates, aren't you like one of the richest guys in the world and you only hang around rich people? So like, do you really need Epstein to meet the other rich people when you have right. been meeting with them for years and you have that you know, famous meeting in 2009 about reducing the population with you know, uh, Ted Turner and Oprah and Michael Bloomberg and all of these people. Yeah. Like he doesn't know rich people. I mean, it's just like the most ludicrous um, explanation. And he was never held accountable for that or the earlier ties, um, which I think is uh, very much why they've kept the focus on Epstein in a particular area and not on the broader implications of it. And also why the cases the U.S. government has chosen to bring against, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell recently, you know, it, it covers a time period in the mid 90s. It's not uh, really, you know, recent by any any measure. So it's definitely um, interesting stuff. So. Yep. It, two guys that you can't trust, Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates, working on projects together. I mean, I would say if you're not suspicious of the projects that they're involved in, then you're not paying attention because those guys, despite what it says on their business card, neither one of those people were philanthropists. They are they have an agenda that's very yeah. dark. We had Epstein fin financing evolutionary dynamics um, at programs mm -hmm. at, at Harvard. And it's like, what is that? Well, it's like 
game theory and 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 population control and what happens if we if we uh, make a, a change here what does that do to the overall population this is this is the precursors to eugenics programs i mean this is some dark stuff and when you look yeah. into bill gates's background yes he's this tech nerd guy but you know his dad has a has a dark history of of being involved in planned parenthood and i had this conversation with david ike a couple of months ago and we were talking about how if you have you have these these two um, stories, these pre the these themes that you you've seen uh, over the last thirty years, you've got nerdy freshman at Harvard who starts a transformational uh, technology company with stolen technology um, and goes on to become a massive billionaire. Bill Gates uh, leaves Harvard as a fr- after a freshman year, uh, drops out and starts this company. Bill Gates doing that and Mark Zuckerberg both part of an agenda. Then the second um, fake narrative you have is the, we just de- developed this uh, tech transformational company in Silicon Valley in our garage. You know, so then you've got the Googles, yeah. Hewlett Packards, and and David Icke was going, oh my God, I just watched a documentary about that where they took all the garage doors and they took them to this museum and they had all the garage doors and everything. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> they're, they're they don't have, they're not very creative. So no, they give they're you two not. narratives or two versions of these heroes that are, these tech guys that are coming to save you. Either they're, they're, they just got lucky in their garage in Silicon Valley or, or, or got lucky in their, their dorm room in, in Harvard. Pay no attention to the, the, the actual funding where that came from. Inkytel, the CIA from DARPA most of the time. Or yeah. Inkytel. Mm-hmm. Don't look at that. Don't ever look at that. <laughs> it's just, these guys got lucky. So yeah. worship Mark Zuckerberg. Well, you know, it's interesting when talking about Silicon Valley companies, a lot of people are pretty aware, at least now, that like Google got InQtel funding, Palantir, you know, their CIA ties are even more glaring than Google's um, to a huge degree. But Facebook has sort of been left out of that. And what's really interesting is that right before Facebook launched, actually, it was sh- the, the announcement of it being shut down was made the very day that Facebook as a company launched with Palantir's yes. Peter Thiel as the main investor, by the way. Exactly. He was already tied up with the CIA to a huge degree. But this program that was shut down right before Facebook came out was analogous to Facebook, and it was run by DARPA. It was an extension of this total information awareness um, surveillance program that was proposed after 9-11 that was, you know, uh, criticized heavily even by mainstream media and eventually, uh, you know, had to be shut down by an extension. But all these private equivalents not tied to the government pop up. And of course, they're, they don't look like they're connected to the government. And they're not held accountable. Um, but really, the the parallels are are stunning. And then you have years, uh, not that long after, you know, like Facebook opens up their like weird building eight research facility, and they hire the former head of DARPA uh, to run that, which is a little interesting. And, you know, um, with this new war on domestic terror that we're facing, we're now having people being uh, arrested, basically pre-crime arrests because of their violent posts made on Facebook or social media, which is really interesting. And this whole life log thing was meant to have basically a log of every life event and life milestone of, 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 of a person from birth to the present that could be used basically for the purpose of surveillance, but also profiling people who may uh, dissent or become problematic for the government. Yeah. And where we are now, I mean, it's really obvious to me anyway, that even if Facebook wasn't intentionally set up to be lifelog in practice with this new war on domestic terror, 
uh, that has, you know, uh, escalated really quickly after January 6th. It, it basically is the same thing. It's serving the same purpose, which was, uh, you know, use, getting people to express their views, making them feel like it's a public forum and then criminalizing them with it. Uh, it's just very alarming and more reason than any other one. I mean, even more than them censoring, you know, articles and things like that. The whole pre-crime arrest angle of it, I think, is more than enough for people to boycott Facebook. And then Snowden came forward and started talking about um, the collection of all of this information. And he was saying it wasn't so much, you know, what really bothered him the most about it was that let's say you commit, you, you do something 10 years from now that they ca- they catch you on and then they go back and retroactively go through your history and make a case against you based on who you yeah. talked to. And the, the, that was the part that, that was the most alarming. So you, like you said, you, you get everyone, you, you, you open up the town square, Twitter, Facebook, and you invite everybody in, tell them it's, you know, it's free. And this is just, you know, information, you're just chatting with your friends. And and then, like you said, you, you build up enough of, you gather enough of this information over years and years. You then build a profile of these people. And then if you want to, anytime you want to, you can go in and throw the switch and say, you said something offensive. Uh, we're going to come get you. Now I saw this firsthand, um, in, on a smaller scale with me on Facebook in 2019 I got put in a 30-day Facebook uh, jail for a post from 2017. I I for, I didn't even I forgot I put it up I and mean, it wasn't even anything big. It was a meme. Then it happened to me three more times in that summer. So in the summer of 2019, I was put in Facebook jail four times for four offenses that all had to do um, with something said two years earlier. And that to me was really frustrating because you know you throw your hands up and you go, "What do you want me to do?" Like, what am I supposed to do? You're banning me for stuff I said two years ago? Uh, like, how how am I supposed to defend myself? Okay, fine, I won't say it again, but this is ridiculous. So the retroactive uh, prosecution of you for thought crimes is is coming. And 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 this domestic terrorist component of it is is devious and very scary. And I think people maybe are not quite understanding how problematic and how dark this can be. Because when when you start hunting domestic terrorism and then you leave that term kind of vague, it just, it, you just have to see, you just have to look at history and yeah. see what happens when everybody could be a domestic terrorist. Then that, what do they do? Is this the Khmer Rouge? They start ra- rounding up scientists and doctors and historians and teachers and, and anybody with a brain, anybody that's wearing glasses. Is that the criteria for now they, they they consider you a domestic terrorist? I mean, it sounds preposterous, but this is what's happened in the past. So we have to sort of look at this and we think, oh, no, no, no. America's better than that. They're not going to do that. Really? Have you have you seen the behavior of Americans over the last year? I don't know how much better we are than that. And 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 the 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 authoritarian component of this that's been rolled out lately is very um, alarming to me because what I'm seeing is two things. I'm seeing the 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 police forces not resist at all, just jump right in to this authoritarian role. This role is the brown shirt. And I've seen the American public just throw their hands up and cower and say, tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just make it all stop. Well, this isn't this is a recipe for disaster. And then, um, you know, so I think that as we get further into this year and we start to hear the term domestic terrorist thrown around a lot more. It's going to be a wake up call for some people to realize, hang on a second, by this vague classification, 
I'm a domestic terrorist too, you know? Oh, what does that mean? Well, it means that you, you are subject to be, um, to the, to the will of the state. Whenever they decide that they want to round you up and take you off somewhere and, 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 and reeducate you, you go, oh, that would never happen here. Real. Well, what do you have to do when you fly into Canada now? You have to test negative for a COVID test in, in a hotel. And then if you test positive, where do they take you? They take you to a government facility. <laughs> so this is, this is all, you know, all of us conspiracy theorists out there, we would like an apology because hey, yeah. these things that we speculated about that we told you were coming and you said, get out of here. This is never going to happen. You're crazy. Look, it's being rolled out now in front of our eyes. So it's something that we have to be aware of. Well, that's something, you know, that, that caught my attention when I read that, um, that recent news about the Biden administration uh, having FEMA divert a lot of its focus and funds, not from like natural disasters, despite what's just happened in Texas and like Oregon and in major parts of the country. Now they're instead focusing, they're, they've been told to focus a lot of their funding and efforts on domestic terrorism, which, you know, as soon as I read that, I, I hear Alex Jones's voice in my head from years ago screaming about FEMA camps, right? But, you know, it's interesting that, you know, why FEMA for domestic terrorism when you already have the FBI and DHS uh, devoting the majority of their resources per them now uh, to the to that specific issue. We really, we really need to add FEMA to at a time when like there are natural disasters that they should be focusing on instead. Um, the organization that can't distribute bottled water to people, <laughs> you want them in charge of the domestic terrorist program? Yeah. I don't think so. Well, they're not in charge, but they're going to be playing some role. Um, but it hasn't been, you know, all the roles they're playing haven't been um, laid out, really. But what's really alarming to me about this war on domestic terror is the role that the Anti-Defamation League is playing in it. Um, if you go back to some of these hearings, like when they basically first announced this war on domestic terrorism, right as COVID hit um, in front of Congress in, in March 2020, uh, the FBI talks about how their field offices um, are basically tipped off about who to investigate as domestic terror threats by the ADL, um, which is really alarming when you consider that, um, for example, the ADL was advising the FBI at the time of the assassination of Malcolm X, and Malcolm X was labeled by the ADL as like the worst anti-Semite in America at the time, um, and things like that. And, you know, aside from that example, you know, over the years, the ADL has been really obvious about the fact that they basically support the uh, prevailing government narrative of Israel's government at any given time. So people that often express, uh, you know, uh, pro-BDS sentiments or support Palestinian rights or things like that often get smeared as anti-Semitic um, by the ADL. And what's interesting and hasn't been covered that much about the war on domestic terror is that there's actually been this overarching focus on what's anti-Semitic domestic terrorism that, um, you know, is allows them to focus both on people on the left and also on the right. You know, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis are anti-Semitic, but there's also the anti-Semitic extremist left and, and things like that. And you have the ADL um, being one of the key people, despite their conflict of interest with a foreign government. And also their funding from a lot of these quote unquote philanthropist oligarchs who also had all these ties with Epstein, um, you know, the biggest funders of, of the Anti-Defamation League for years have been members of this, uh, the mega group, uh, the Bronfman brothers, um, you know, Leslie Wexner himself, people like that. Um, so it's definitely really alarming to see the involvement of, of those people coming back to Epstein again, you know, being allowed to basically say to the FBI, investigate this person and the FBI's like, and we just do it. 
You know, I mean, that hasn't been covered enough, in my opinion. Ah, the Anti-Defamation League spends their days out defaming everybody. It's just the irony of it. Yeah, they're 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 a danger. I labeled them a terrorist organization in my book <laughs> because, yeah. you know, the way they treat people, the way they go around um, labeling people as anti-Semites or or domestic, you know, or, or whatever, whatever label they put on it, because they have some clout. I mean, they for I, I don't obviously trust them and you don't trust them, but the vast majority of people see that name and they think, oh, this is what you're, you're about, um, you know, going after the people that are defaming you. Oh, you're anti-defamation league. Great. It couldn't be further th from the truth. What mm -hmm. they're doing, what they're doing is they're, they're saying anybody that doesn't, um, anybody that is critical of, of Israel's foreign policy, the government of Israel, no, no, we're not talking about Jewish people. We're not talking about Jews from Israel. We're, not, we're talking about the government of Israel. Anybody that's critical of them, or like you said, pro BDS or pro Palestinian, Palestinian uh, rights and things like that. Oh, I mean, they they're automatically on a list. And 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 think about the, think about the irony of that. The 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 Anti Defamation League, backed by uh, Jewish billionaires, making lists of people to be taken away to camps. Mm, how the how the roles have reversed over the over the last seventy five years. Yeah, huh? yeah. Well, it makes it makes a lot of sense when you consider that you know the Net Netanyahu's political party in Israel, uh, Likud. Uh, was originally founded by P by uh, Jabotinsky, who was inspired specifically by Mussolini's style of fascism um, in the 20s and the 30s, of course, which led, uh, you know, I mean, obviously Italy being part of, you know, the the baddies in World War II. Um, but, you know, that same ideology that, you know, led the led to that fascism represented by the Axis powers, you know, is is behind also the ruling party of Israel today. So, you know, um, it's really not that uh, surprising in that sense to see, you know, I mean, if if the ruling party in Israel is based along, was inspired by the ethno-fascism of, of that era, it's not hard to see what happens now. The thing is now that, you know, they have the ADL, so that helps protect them from uh, you know, dissenting opinions by, you know, uh, allowing them to play the victim card and to compare people you know, to Nazis just for, uh, uh, you know, criticizing their, their policies and things like that. But, you know, it's not just the FBI, too. Going back to Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley's hate lab, uh, which was basically funded into existence by Pierre Omidyar, um, the eBay founder who also backs the Intercept, uh, you know, that, that the ADL runs that. It's the ADL hate lab, but it's been funded by you know, the Silicon Valley uh, billionaires to an extent. And, you know, uh, Pyramidiar is not Jewish. So, I mean, it's definitely something that, you know, they just sort of defer to them, I guess, or allow them for whatever reason, because of their connections, their funding, their influence, what have you, uh, to have just a, a hugely outsized role in this war on domestic terror. And that's what... You know, I, I really wish this this would get more attention because a lot there are people on the progressive left that are cheering this war on domestic terror on, but they know that the ADL is basically a front for Israel's government. Um, if they've ever run into problems regarding like supporting BDS or something like that on the progressive left, and and I think if those people, you know, you could show them how a lot of this, at least at the lower levels, you know, is, is, is being dominated in some ways by the Anti-Defamation League. Is it really about, you know, domestic terror or is it about uh, dissenting opinions? Um, and, you know, it, it, it's obviously going to be a very blurred line if you're having these these groups like the ADL intimately involved. And of course, the FBI, too, which is, you know, fundamentally corrupt and pretty much every big investigation they've ever done has been just a massive cover up, whether that's, you know, the anthrax attacks, their role in investigation 
investigating, uh, quote unquote, investigating 9-11 and, you know, numerous other um, events throughout the years. Um, you know, it's no coincidence, as I point out in my Epstein series, that um, some of these uh, people in this, you know, syndicate that are tied to the ADL ended up actually blackmailing J. Edgar Hoover uh, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, largely thanks to um, the union between uh, U.S. intelligence through uh, Bill Donovan and, and Mayor Lansky of the of the Jewish uh, mafia or the Jewish mob, which was, you know, part of the National Crime Syndicate at the time. So uh, I really wish more people would uh, focus on this particular group in relation to that, because it's not just about the U.S. government, you know, it's it then it looks less like the U.S. government or the Biden administration leading on this um, because they're uh, it, it it's definitely a little more complex than that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they've. Um, th- this is uh, this is something that's going to wake a lot of people up. And if you think that you're 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 safe because you are in agreement with the prevailing narrative now. Just wait till you have a, a contradictory thought later in the future. They will come for you too. Yeah. So one of the things in, in your book with Jeff Berwick that you you talk about uh, needing to identify in regards to whether or not the collapse of, of the American empire is imminent or not is the extent of public division. Of that, that, of course, ties in really well with this whole uh, domestic terror discussion because uh, it's obviously been used even more uh, as a wedge to divide the public in the U.S. even more than it was over COVID or things that even preceded, um, you know, COVID-19 and all of that. So... Um, how does this division play into the collapse of American empire? And what do you think have been some of the biggest events in manufacturing it both recently and historically? Oh yeah. The division of the public is paramount to this, to the collapse because, and, and, and frankly, that's a, an operation they've been running on us for a very long time. Keep us divided, red team, blue team, rich versus poor, black and white, you, it, geographical uh, areas, you name it. There, if there's a way to divide us into smaller and smaller groups, they'll do that. But what we've seen in the last two years has been a massive acceleration. Uh, the division of the public, that wealth inequality that's happening in this um, in this situation. That you know, we we hear these statistics of, you know, the three richest people in in America have more wealth than the bottom fifty percent. This is another form of division. It's economic division, and and it works to create almost like a two tiered system. You already see that in the legal in the legal system for sure. I mean, the rich have one set of rules for them, and the poor have another. And, um, so we look at these things. These are, these are signs that you are in a a society that is decaying and, um, it's tough to come back from this unless you get very honest about who is the problem here. Who's running this, this show, who's trying to divide you. And it's the, of course it's the mainstream media is at the forefront of this and social media too, uh, to an extent, but the mainstream media creates these narratives. They tell they shape reality and they create a division of the public. They get people fighting. All you have to do is just flip from one news channel, one cable news channel to the other and see how things are being played out. And you can take the same event and have it sound very different depending on which audience is watching. So they've got, you know, if, if you're, you know, watching MSNBC and CNN and you talk about the Capitol uh, a situation on January 6th, it's, oh my God, it's the new 9-11. This cannot stand. This is the destruction of our democracy. It's a blah, blah, blah. I mean, they just, they couldn't sell it any harder. Yeah. But, but for, for people on the other side, they saw it as, 
this looks like a bunch of LARPing retards out there dressed up in <laughs> costumes. This doesn't seem like anything real. This is a joke. The cops are, we, there's a video of cops letting them in. There's, 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 there's massive amounts of professional photographers standing all over the place, taking pictures of this. this the, none of this looks real. So it's like, here we go. We're divided into what even reality is at this point. So yeah, that works to, you know, if, if the, if in order to prevent this collapse from happening, you have to come together as a, as a, as a nation, as a, as a nation of ants against these grasshoppers. Well, they know that of course, they know that they are the few and we are the many and the best strategy for keeping us, uh, from getting them and dragging them out of their castles is to keep us down on the reservations fighting with each other. And that of course is what they've done and taken it to a scientific level, you know? So, so for those of us that are fighting against one another, I understand it's frustrating. There's a lot to, there's a lot to argue about, but, but while we're doing that, let's at least carve out a portion of that time to acknowledge that we are being pitted against each other by forces above us that need us to fight. And if we were to put that aside, our petty differences just for, just say, I'll get back to arguing with you people on the left and the right later. But for now, let's prioritize our efforts and focus on the real problem, which is the ruling class. If we did that, I think that we would find that after that situation was taken care of, those people that we had arguments with on the left and the right, I think those arguments would be, uh, would, would not be of, of much interest to us anymore. I think that the, the real problem is that we're getting controlled by forces far above us. And, um, until we wake up and, and recognize the game that's being played, the fact we'll, we'll never solve it. And, and, and to be fair, a large segment of the population they don't even realize there's a game being played. They have no idea what their role is in this. So, so it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough road. You know, it's going to be a tough road because, uh, you, you have to wake up a bunch of people and, and there's an old proverb an, an old Navajo proverb, I think it was that says it, it is impossible to wake somebody who is pretending to be asleep. Hmm. I haven't heard that one before, but that's a really good point. But this whole, you know, division thing is something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of, you know, what can we do to to solve it or to combat it? And I keep sort of really just coming back to, you know, it's really an, an information war in an extent because a lot of this division is, you know, based on different perceptions, like you were saying. I mean, they've basically become different realities. And, you know, if it, if it is the case that the best way to solve it is through information, you know, then, then it obviously, you know, it becomes uh, a responsibility specifically of independent media because, you know, the propaganda organs of the state or uh, mainstream media, you know, their content that comes out is uh, one of the biggest factors in manufacturing uh, this division, in my opinion, you know, with January 6th, you know, how they use that to divide people and create those different realities uh, based, you know, where there's this fact-based narrative, um, you know, that you and I would, you know, f you, you cited some of the facts there, the police and all of that. But then there's a separate narrative, this emotion-based narrative, like, you know, AOC was almost murdered and all of this stuff, despite the fact that she was in a different building and all of this stuff, you know, but people become emotionally invested in it and then the facts don't matter. You know, a lot of that has to do with mainstream media, but, you know, I keep seeing so many people in independent media uh, being just as divided, if not more, than the public. 
Um, and it really, you know, makes you wonder, um, you know, about, about um, you know, the, the best ways to, to combat this. So I didn't want to sound too doom and gloomy there because obviously, you know, there, there is an impact to be made by people like you and me and other, you know, others with integrity um, and independent media. But, you know, increasingly it seems like, um, and it's very possible there's like psyops of this effect to, to drum it up in independent media. Um, but I feel like a lot of outlets have, have increasingly, uh, you know, dropped the ball. I think so. And, and it's a shame. Um, and, and you, you mentioned not sounding too doom and gloom. I'd like to not sound that way as well. So I'd, I'll take this opportunity <laughs> to say that, look, the game is not over yet. Right. We, we have a, we have an opportunity for this whole thing to turn around, but it requires us to acknowledge that, that we have been played and that's a tough thing to, you know, that we've been lied to. And that is psychologically, it's a difficult thing for us to, to, um, you know, to come to terms with, but we need to grow up and we need to get over this. But because if we do recognize what has happened and, and the alternative media is going to have to play a, a better role in, in this of, of, of really waking people up with facts, you know, the, the mainstream media preys on emotion. They get, you know, facts don't even matter to them. They just, they want you to feel a certain way. The mainstream media has, has done that for a long, long time. The alternative media has tried to combat emotion with facts and that will work for some people, but it will not work for everybody. I think until you get the, um, the American public emotionally angry at the government for this, then things will start to change. But if we're trying to combat them, I mean, I can roll out COVID statistics all day long from the CDC and, def, you know, and, 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 and destroy their own argument with their own numbers. Um, so the alternative media has been really good at dealing with the facts of the case, whereas the mainstream media focuses on the emotions of, of, of these stories. They want to make you feel a certain way, whereas the uh, alternative media wants to give you the facts and debunk things. So until we get to a point where the alternative media can can emotionally connect with the readers, can get them to feel this this frustration and this pain, and it beyond just fact checking the, these these liars in 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 the mainstream media. We've got to do a better job of getting people, um, you know, angry to the point where they're going to want to do something about. It. Maybe angry is not the right word, but but just you know, understanding the current situation so well that they that it gives them no choice but to be frustrated and then that is the first step towards actually doing something about it where we've been in the in the united states for the last 20 years or so is just we've all just been passive observers of this yeah we, we're not very good at protesting or riot you know or any of those things i mean our, our protests turn into riots and and, and they're and they're co-opted you know to begin with mm -hmm. so we're, we're gonna have to fight this battle on two levels, we're going to have to deal with um, the 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 massive, never-ending lies of the mainstream media trying to uh, craft a, a a narrative or a view of the world that 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 creates this anger and 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 resentment in a, in whoever's watching their their program. And we're going to have to counteract that by you know by by getting people you know, g giving them the facts and then getting them to emotionally get invested in, in trying to change these things. But w where we've been recently, you know, fighting the mainstream media, boy, it's tough because they're so pervasive and people, so many normie people just depend on them for their news and they don't even check to see if they think that, you know, if there's, if there's any truth to it. And that's a dangerous place to be. So if we, if we do our job right, and we expose the mainstream media for being the pathological liars that they are, that is one step closer to getting the, the public to start looking for different versions of information. If they, if they know that they can't trust the mainstream media, which they should know, but they don't, 
then then the next step is okay well then where do i go for information and it's like well let me let me show you there's some other outlets out there and just because the guy telling you this information isn't wearing a suit and tie and sitting in a um you know collecting a 9 million dollar a year salary it doesn't make his information any less valid in fact quite the contrary it might make his information uh l less compromised because he's not being paid millions of dollars to deliver it so so a a, a pushback towards this you know, towards real journalism, boy, we need it now more than ever. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that assessment. And um, I think you brought up some good points that we really need to try and, and stress to people how high the stakes are so that they become emotionally invested in, in the outcomes and don't remain passive observers while we're facing things like the Great Reset and, and you know, these types of, um, you know, events that are clearly coming coming, you know, down the pike. Um, and I really hope that that more people become receptive to that. But you know, what's interesting, too, is that I think, um, at least in independent media, there are some people also um, that are afraid to speak up about these more recently contentious issues, whether it's the this domestic terror effort or or COVID or something to that effect. And I think a lot of that is because these people are invested sort of in, in it for, you know, a, as a career, as opposed to, you know, they're just here uh, because they want to get information out. You know, there's usually so there's some people that are mixes of those two things, not necessarily, you know, a black and white thing. But I think to people that are motivated um, by a large degree, by by careerism at this point, um, I think are unaware just how journalism in the world of the Great Reset is set to change. Um, you know, you have Google, for example, I believe they're doing this in Turkey, uh, doing a pilot study to basically replace journalists at, at uh, you know, the uh, state-run uh, Turkish media outlet with AI and have algorithms uh, write the Great. news um, because, you know, you can train the the AI like this is uh, the syntax used in an intro and basically teach them the grammatical structures, train them on millions of mainstream media news articles and have them busted out, you know. And so obviously, you know, whether you're a careerist in mainstream media or independent me media, you know, it doesn't really matter because these people don't really, despite all their public talk of, oh, we need to protect journalism and the integrity of journalism and truth and all this stuff, the fact checkers and what have you, I mean, the people that fund them are planning to replace them all <laughs> with yeah. robots and, and artificial intelligence. So I think, you know, maybe uh, if you have contact with any of those people, those listening, independent people, or maybe, you know, someone in your family that happens to be in mainstream uh, media, for example, you know, uh, it, I think it's worth stressing that, you know, we are really at a critical juncture and that careerism is not really a valid motivation at this point, given what we're facing, because, you know, you'll be preserving your career perhaps uh, for a couple months tops. I remember seeing uh, China roll out a video of an AI news anchor and oh, uh, they were so proud of it. They said this was the first uh, robotic news anchor. And I put it on Twitter. I said, how dare you? We were the first to have soulless robot news readers um, <laughs> in the United States. And yeah. now you're rolling out this Wolf AI. Blitzer, think we're going to come on. Anderson Cooper. I mean, listen, we have a monopoly on on robot news readers yeah. out here in the U.S. And, and, and you know, to be fair to, to the alternative media, too, you have to make a calculation. On this, you know, whether if you're going to if you're going to talk about some of these important stories and you should you if you know the game and you know what is possible, you do have to realize that there's there's going to be backlash. I mean, there there all always was. But but as you said, moving into this new fourth industrial revolution 
version of the world with, um, you know, the role of reporters and things like that, there, there will be, um, if you go hard against these people, they will come back for you. So you have to calculate that too. So that, like you said, it's, it's the decision. Are you in this for a career or are you in this to really get the news and information out? And, and this will separate some people, you know, who, who wants to talk about this stuff and put a big target on their, on their heads. Yeah. I think it already has yeah, already, separated yeah, people. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we see deplatforming. We see, I mean, we've seen worse than that uh, with regard to the people in the in the vaccine whistleblowers that turn up DEAD sometimes, you know, after, yeah. uh, after, after going, going hard in the paint, as Sam Tripoli likes to say, uh, on, on these topics, because you, you, you are infringed, you are, you are getting very close to something that the powers that be do not want you talking about. And so there's repercussions for that. And, and, and so we have to be, we have to be brave and strategic and smart and careful and all of those things. But we also have to remember what is what's important. And that is if we don't stand up for these sorts of things now, we're going to get to a point where we can't. There's yes. there's 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 no you can't do it from inside the cell. You know, you're stuck. So so I hate to be so you know, dramatic about it, but, but it is the reality of the situation is that we are, we are watching the walls of the digital prison be built right in front of our eyes. And if we don't stand up now, we might get to a point where we never can. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. Well, that's probably a great place to end it. You know, uh, a very, very relevant call to action. And I really um, hope that people listening realize, like, even if you don't have a platform, much, much of a following on social media, there's so much you can do to get this information out, whether it's like guerrilla printing of news articles or like putting like, you know, stickers that promote your favorite independent media site somewhere in town or whatever, or emailing it to your friends and family. You know, there, it, 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 there's so much that can be done and that needs to be done in order to, to try and, and, and change, uh, you know, turn the tide in terms of like the, the information component of this, you know, what's really a, a, a war in a lot of senses, you know, they, the state uses, you know, this sort of wartime terminology for a lot of things recently, you know, um, the war on domestic terror, also COVID being described as like a war, you know, oftentimes, I mean, we, we really are, in in uh something that is a battle in at least a sense you know maybe not like in the traditional sense that you would think of but there definitely is a fight taking place and it's really um you know incumbent on on all of us to take some sort of stand and uh you know even if you don't think you have a lot of power to affect change you probably do so um with that being said thanks so much charlie for joining us today and catch you all next time on the next episode of unlimited hangout